Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, so uh, we were talking about memory, we'll, we'll finish this, the uh, sort of systems approach stuff, okay? I've posted another article on the CMS, this one is, uh, one we'll talk about in, in a brief moment um, when we get through some of this stuff. And then we'll talk about development, uh, memory development as well. So we're talking about levels of processing. The idea of depth of processing is how deep something is, is kind of a vague notion, there's no argument there. And the question I ask is, when do you get better memory? How do you know you have better memory? Uh, well, we have deeper processing. How do you know that you have deeper processing? The only evidence is that you have better memory. So it's a, it's a circular thing. And that's something that um, I don't like much. That said, uh, it's a really important article, Levels of Processing, uh, the Craig Lockhart article, and it does organize a lot of data. Uh, as a... As an explanatory tool, it may not be quite as useful, but it does organize stuff, so I think that's, that's a useful thing. And I talked about transfer-appropriate processing, which is kind of a, a spin on this. Now, when we talk about memory systems approaches, this is, again, looking at... This is more... Not just looking at um, a model like uh, SAM or TLC or Axstar. We're talking here about looking at all of memory and looking at the different systems. So you hopefully have read uh, Tolving's uh, episodic and semantic memory paper, which I posted really early in the course. Um, this is the idea that we have two separate systems doing two separate things. Episodic memory, looking at memory for events in our lives. Things that are self-referential. They are autobiographical. And semantic memory, which is knowledge about the world. Uh, Tolving always uses the example, and I've used it as well many times. Episodic is what you have for breakfast this morning. Semantic is knowing what breakfast is. One of these is explicit, and one of them is implicit. Um, episodic memory is usually explicit, right? It pretty much has to be. Do you remember when, and then you think about it. Think about what did you have for breakfast this morning. You, you, you think about that, you can imagine the episode itself. Um, implicitly, you know what breakfast is. You don't have to remember when you learned what breakfast was. It's just knowledge you have. Right? There's some physiological evidence. Uh, I said it here of a sort. <laughs> Uh, and that evidence comes from brain injury people, right? Brain injury patients, people like KC, who doesn't have any more episodic memory. And he also has no, but he has no, so he has no explicit memory, therefore no episodic memory. So for example, you give KC a list of words, he can't remember them, but he also can't remember anything, any episodes about his life. He has no access to that anymore. I'm not saying he doesn't have it anymore, we don't know the answer to that. Um, it may still be up there but he doesn't access it. He still can learn new semantic knowledge. Right? He's learned new associations before, and they've lasted six months. So he can learn new things, he just never remembers learning them. Okay. Uh, HM is another sort of classic example here, obviously in HM, and you know, I'm not gonna tell you anymore about HM. <laughs> I hope that you know what HM was, so I'll just leave that where it is. Um, 
Tolvin maintains that only humans had a Masonic name. Um, he says this, and you know, first of all, take a step back, there really should be some continuity between species when you look at something like memory, the persistence of learning, because it's a pretty important thing. We see learning in every species that's ever been tested of him. So if that's the case, we would expect there to be some continuity between species, just because it's so old. Yeah, go ahead. Wouldn't, um, let's say, in Skinner's experiments, or even, um, uh, oh, maybe escaped me. Anyways, when you're looking at your animals, and they remember when you do your stimulus and uh, conditioning, that's it. Yeah. They get sick to a food. They remember they get sick to that food, so they don't go back to that food. Yeah, or that source of food. But that needn't be something that's explicit. No, but wouldn't it be episodic? Because we don't know that they remember the episode itself. And you can learn... Uh, you can be classically and operant, operantly, I'm not sure that's a word, uh, conditioned. And you would have, uh, talk about this, you have no idea what the contingencies are, but you respond as if, you respond showing you do know them, you just aren't aware of them. Right. Right? So, it isn't necessary to be aware of a contingency to be controlled by it. Right? I remember when my daughter was 24 hours old, and one of the first things I did when, when she came home is I, you know how kids, they'll curl their toes when you touch their feet? I touched her leg, right about there, and touched her foot, and her toes curled. And I did it again, and then while I was doing it, I touched her foot, released one stimulus, released the other, toes curled. I did it four times, the fifth time I touched her leg, and her foot curled, her toes curled. I really doubt that at the age of 24 hours, that she had the explicit memory of me even doing that. Um, development today, in fact. Uh, and that's just one example where one can be conditioned, a human, and not know what the conditions are. You don't know what they are. So if I can show you that you don't need it, then you don't have to have it to solve that task, right? To, 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 to avoid a food. I mean, I, I had a taste aversion to gin. I worked on it and got rid of it. But um, from, from, from drinking a whole lot of gin once. And I, I even know what the, and I know what the episode was. I know exactly what it was. Gin and wink. <coughs> Pop wink. It's kind of like fresca. No. Didn't turn out well. Had too much. And for a long time, I would walk into the liquor store and I'd see the gin right there. But, and I know what the episode is. That said, I wouldn't have to remember the episode. Right? Just like the rat doesn't have to, because it's just classical condition. Um, so Tolvin maintains that while he and Tolvin would not argue, if he was here, he would not argue that, that, that animals don't learn amazing things, that non-human animals don't learn amazing things. And show what he might even call episode, looks like episodic-like behavior but it needn't be episodic memory to do it. However, for me to ask you what you had for breakfast, you have to remember what you had for breakfast. There's no way to do that implicitly. Right? That's the argument he would make. That's the argument he would make. Um, 
For him, it involves consciousness, because it must be self-referential. It must be, I did this. By definition, episodic memory is like that. I don't agree with it. <laughs> um, if we talk about episodic memory, which is memory that is what happened when, what you have to do when you, when you study non-humans, or when you study non-verbal humans, so let's say you're studying uh, kids under the age of two, if you're doing something like that, you have to be able to, because you can't ask a kid under two, typically, they aren't verbal enough. You can't ask a dog, Right? And I know, yes, I know, I'm sure your dog just is like people. But no, they're not. They're dogs. When people call their dogs their children, it really bothers them. I thought I'd kill that Mummy's not, no, it's not your mummy. It's a whole other species. I know what it's like. I've got dogs. You have no idea what it's like to have children. None. See, when I leave my kids, well, now it's different, but I remember saying this to people. When I leave my kids, um, I actually can't just leave them in the house and go away all day. I have to be there. It's not only the law. Look, we got, my dog sent me a Christmas card. That's when you go, I don't want to be your friend anymore. You just back off and say, okay, go over there. Go over there. Anyway, that said... If you can remember, no matter what your species is, if you can remember where and when, time and place, that you did something, seems to me that sounds a lot like episodic memory. And this is work that Al Camel, Ken Cheng, and Nikki Clayton did. They had Clark's Nutcrackers, really smart birds that store food. And they had them find... Um, food uh, in, in different locations in a, in a lab. And that food was, could go bad, basically. It was worms. Mealworms. That's the now, mealworms can go off to the point where you can't eat them anymore. Right? You can store them for a while, but after a while, eventually, they're, they're going to be inedible. They, they, they can stop eating food. They, they're now garbage. So, and, 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 and uh, I think it's Chang, Clayton, and Campbell. I think that's the order of the paper. I can't remember. Um, they found that the birds would go to the locations where the mealworms were. They also knew, though, how long ago they put those worms there. Because after a while, they wouldn't go to certain sites not because they'd forgotten them, but because they knew that the food was now inedible. See what I'm saying? So if you do that, that sounds... In fact, I believe the title of the paper is Episodic-like Memory in Clark's Nutcrackers. Um, so it seems to me that that sounds, a lot, that sounds a lot to me like episodic memory. Right? Would you argue then that Clark's Nutcrackers are conscious? I doubt self Clark, Clark's not crackers have a self concept. I doubt that they know that their Clark's not crackers or other species aren't and that they wonder about the world. 
I don't think so. But they show memory that is very similar, has the same characteristics. Right? So I think that, I think the idea of saying consciousness, and I think there is human exceptionalism in cognition. Don't misunderstand me. There really is. No other, no other, not a bunch of Clark's not crackers are sitting around doing what we're doing today. Doesn't happen. You know, even chips, our closest relatives, aren't doing that. They throw poop at each other. Right? That's what they do for fun. But, is there stuff that looks like episodic memory of these other animals? And I, I would say yes. But that's a controversial position, and it's one that is usually held by people that have mostly studied animal cognition. Or like me, who have studied both human and animal cognition. It's not something, if you're a hardcore human cognition person, usually you go, no, because they're not conscious. Which in essence is kind of like saying, no, because they're not human. Right? I don't, and we could say something about, say, language as a, a parallel here. I don't say that other animals don't have language because they're not human. I say other animals don't have language because I see no evidence of other animals having language. That's the answer. Not, well, they're unconscious. I mean, I remember Tolkien giving a talk on consciousness uh, and, and saying that I'm not going to define it because we all know what it means. And we were all graduates, and so we can't handle Tolkien, you don't say shut it's, you know, he knows what he's doing. And there's one young faculty member, Pat Bennett, who's now the chair of the department at uh, McMaster. And he said, that's just unacceptable. And I was like, that's awesome. You are so ballsy. Um, but <laughs> Pat was right. If you can't just say, we all know what it means. Now, that said, people are studying consciousness and will maybe someday understand what it is. So I don't think that's a good point. I think the episodic semantic distinction is good. Don't misunderstand me. I just say that it's not only humans that have episodic memory. I remember Endel once saying, I think maybe, this was in a talk, and Sarah Shuttleworth and I were there, he said, I think it may be the case that David and Sarah's chickenies have a little tiny in the So I was like, oh, okay. But yeah, he emphasized little tiny. <laughs> that was pretty good. Um, why would there be multiple systems? Well, this, and this is the paper I put up on the CMS today. Um, Dave Sherry and Dan Schachter, two very bright guys. Uh, Dan Schachter did his PhD with Andrew Tolving. Um, and uh, Dave Sherry does uh, behavioral neuroscience at Western. And he was a faculty. They were both young faculty members or postdocs, maybe even, at U of T at the time. And they wrote this. So Sherry and Schachter came up with this. So one guy coming out of an animal behavior kind of background, one guy coming out of a sort of hardcore human cognition background. And they said this, when is it going to show up? When will one evolve a new system? Well, when a problem shows up that cannot be solved with the present system, then a new one would be selected for. It would be advantageous for that individual, for the members of that species, to have a new system to solve a problem. So if you can solve a problem, so in your environment, that with the tools you have available, the cognitive tools you have available, there's no need, there's no advantage to evolve a new system. Right? That said, our memory, humans, for facts, can't really deal with autobiographical stuff. Think about the way that we pretty much know or we guess that semantic memory is organized and that with you know, propositions, a network, 
spreading activation, that kind of stuff we talked about. How could that deal with, ep with, with, with episodes from our lives? Well, there's no mention of time in those models at all, really. Right? And think about it. When I ask you what the capital of Vietnam is, uh, though it's a bad example because most of you learned that from me, um, if I ask you what the capital of Canada is, you just say Ottawa. I doubt you remember when you learned that. And you don't have to. It doesn't help you solve the problem. Right? You don't sit there thinking, well, when did I learn that? Except for maybe Alexander members, but okay, the capital of France. Paris. Yeah, Paris. See, you know. Hope you all knew that too. That's a pretty good one to know. It's an easy one to sound like Vietnam. <laughs> so, autobiographically, we need to know time, we need to know about our we need to be self-referential. So for us to do certain tasks. Now think about human history, evolution of, of, of humanity, going way back, and those of you who took evolutionary psych with me, we talk a lot about that, obviously, in that course. Um, or even if you take brain behavior, we talked about that at the beginning of the course. To be able to do the social things that humans do. Things like, I helped you last time, now you help me today. I have to remember who you are, when you helped me, and what the result was. Did you help me? Because if you didn't help me, you actually screwed me. I'm not going to help you. Right? So to be able to do those things, and that's one of the things, you know, we're not fast. Right? Except for Usain Bolt. But the rest of us aren't that fast. <coughs> the rest of us don't have big, scary teeth. None of us do. Nearly have big, scary teeth. Right? We're not exceptionally strong. But... Who runs the planet? Well, that would be us. How did we do that? We did that through being smarter than everything else and also being able to plan things out and being able to work as a group. And to do that, I have to remember what I did and what you did and when. Which should also tell us if we're looking at it from an evolutionary perspective, it shouldn't be surprising if we see that kind of memory in other animals, in chimps, in bonobos, in gorillas. Right, we should see it. And we, there is evidence of that. In chimps, for example, um, typically one male gets all the mating and the rest of the males hang around going, I can't wait till he dies so I can have sex. <laughs> um, what they do is they, what we in animal behavior call sneak, co sneak copulations, which it means exactly what you think it means. So what happens is, what you've got to do, because if you do that and the other the alpha male sees you, he just kills you. Yeah, isn't nature wonderful? Um, I'm going to get back to the land and, yes, live on a handy mode existence and almost get killed all the time. So what happens is two juveniles, two, uh, well, not juveniles, but younger males, will basically make a deal. One will cause a distraction where the alpha male goes and looks, and the other one goes and has sex with a female. A wingman? In essence. <laughs> now, the interesting thing is, the next time, the guy who got lucky, those who makes the distraction. And the guy who made the distraction gets lucky. Ah, I have to know who did what when, don't I? Because if I'm always going to be the guy that's like, no, it's okay, I'll make the distraction for you. <laughs> no, it's okay, I'll get my turn eventually. Uh, my genes aren't going to get passed on. But if I'm the guy that remembers, right, okay, so last time you did it, this time it's my turn. Right? 
I have to remember that, what the result was. I also might have to remember things like, okay, last time uh, he actually got killed, so I, I really don't think I should maybe find a new partner. Or he got beaten really badly. Because chimps also will use weapons. <laughs> chimps aren't nice. <laughs> you know, we have this idea, we see them in movies, smoking cigars and driving bikes and wearing clothes. Those aren't regular chimps. That was, was the train, little train chips. So we, we should expect that kind of memory in humans and other species closely related to us, and we do see it. I would say the chips do have episodic memory. I will be hearing talks about that in about, wait a second, what's the date today? In a month! In Florida. Okay, let's think of something, this is an example they use in their paper. Bird song. One of the things that songbirds do um, is that they seem to attract mates. Right? Males sing, females uh, are attracted to that. Um, great. Now, I have to, as a, as a young bird, young male bird, I have to learn how to sing. The thing is, I want to have a song that the females will be attracted to. Right? I don't want to have just any old song. Right? Well, everyone else is going, I don't want to be singing Chocolate Rain. <laughs> I said that because I didn't want to mention that thing from Korea. Because I will not. I refuse to. So, a billion hits on YouTube. That guy's made $8 million this year on Google Ads. Wow. So, I better have a pretty good basis for my song. That said, there are going to be changes over time. There are going to be things that I'm going to learn from my father, basically, and hearing other males. My father was obviously successful. I should learn the nuances that he's learned in his song. I'm vastly oversimplifying how bird song really works, by the way. Take animal behavior next year, you'll learn all about it. So what happens is, I have, I have some, what Peter Marler called a template, and it's not quite that simple, but let's pretend it's that simple. That's very the sort of standard, let's say, white crowned sparrow song. And then I have to learn some nuances, some differences, and I have to get feedback. That's not going to work with classical conditioning. It works with a brand new system, the bird song learning system. Birds have a separate system for learning their song, and it is separate from other learning that birds do. And it follows different rules, etc. And it's really important for survival. So this system showed up. On the other hand, would song learning, that, and that, that's like now that I've learned it, I don't change it very much. Would you want that if you're a black capped chickadee, which is also a, a songbird? Would you want that to be used, that system to be used to remember where you hide your food because you're, you store food? Well, no, because you never forget it. Do you want to just sort of fill your memory up with where everything is ever? No. Right? So you have separate systems they'll show up. So it's a kind of a neat paper, so take a look at it. Some conclusions. Uh, models, I think, are cool uh, because they make predictions and they organize data, and that's what they're supposed to do. Um, they can be tested because of these explicit predictions. A good model makes explicit predictions. Right? This is why, and to use the ultimate example of a bad model in psychology, this is why psychoanalysis is a bad model. 
right? Because it can't make explicit predictions. Because if you say, if I ask you if you want to kill your father and sleep with your mother, you say no. First of all, if you say yes, my theory is correct, and I call the authorities. If, I, if you say no, I say my theory is correct, and I just tell you you're repressing. I can't disprove the theory. It doesn't make an explicit prediction. Right? It makes post hoc predictions. That's great at that. Right? And they're completely unfalsifiable because I can, say, I can say this happened to you and this happened to you, and you say, no, it didn't. I say, well, yeah, well, you don't remember that. You've, all, you've completely you've, you've repressed it. Yeah, but Doc, that's not what happened, dude. Right? But these models, the ones we've talked about, made explicit predictions. Um, and they organize data. So, I mean, this is what makes, I think, makes the pool useful. Um, the fewer assumptions, the better. Everything has some assumptions. They can be explicit assumptions like you have in something like SAM, right? Those are all reasonable assumptions, if you remember. Pretty reasonable assumptions. Um, they can be less specific, like they were in the episodic and semantic memory, but they're still there talking about different rules of operation. Questions about models of memory, and then we can move on to good. Okay, so let's talk about development. When you think of developmental questions, typically you think of children. I mean, that's typically what we all do. You think about developmental psychology. Yes, I know that a lot of you uh, take courses in, like, you know, Adolescents and adulthood, the other half of development. Right? And that's all fine, but we tend to think of children. We tend to think of children. Um, I think, I mean, I think that's most people, they think developmental. They say, oh, you're interested in kids. Um, you got to remember, though, your memory changes just like everything else. Your personality, all these other things, they change throughout your life. So other psychological traits do, so there's no reason to expect that memory doesn't change throughout your life. And, and it does. And it does. So we'll talk about kids and we'll talk about uh, adults. So just to give you a reason why I'm going to talk not just about children but about uh, old people like me. Now, and to throw that in, development doesn't always mean improvement. Right? Development just means change. My memory used to be like a steel trap. Now it's like a somewhat rusty steel. And it's one of those things, as you get older, and none of you guys probably run into this yet, but as you get older, it does happen where you go, like, God, I used to be able to just do it. It's like five seconds to remember stuff now. And it used to be like, eh. it'll happen. You young people and your complicated music. <laughs> All right. Okay. You got birth, you know stuff. And you remember lots of stuff. It's a, now, see, most people don't think about this because when you get your first kid, all you do is <coughs> you, you, you just sit there and die. I don't know. What do you do? You don't think about it, the kid's memory. All you think about is there, there was, this didn't come with a manual. There's nowhere to register it you know, online. It's a birth register. a series of frequently asked questions you can look up on some website. There are, but many of them, you know... <laughs> Everyone's, you know, every, when you first time you have a kid, everybody reads the book, What to Expect While You're Expecting. 
which was also a bad, a bad horrible movie that doesn't get with the book. Everybody reads that book, and then the kid comes, and you go, I don't know. The book didn't help at all. And you stand there, and you're holding it, you've been up for 28 hours, and it's crying the whole time. And you're going, I, what do we do? There's only three things why kids cry. Because they, they, they maybe, they're not sad. How could you be sad? So it's either hungry, or it has to go to the bathroom, or sick. And we've changed the kid's diaper 34 times today. And there's nothing wrong. And the, no. And you just sit there and you, and you fall asleep. Then you realize, you fall asleep and you go, my God. Did you notice that the kid's asleep? Let's quickly sleep now. <laughs> That's, that, you don't think about it. I wonder what's going on with their memory. But there, there already is stuff they remember. People study this. I have a couple um, of friends that do this. They study newborns. Right? You remembered, you don't remember this, but you, you, you could recognize your mother's voice and probably your father's voice. Definitely your mother's voice because you hear it, you know, by the time you're around four or five months gestation, right? Kid will react to voice, kid will react to things. My brother used to sing to his first kid. He's a musician, and he like a really low note that would make his daughter kick and punch. Right? <coughs> so you hear that, and certainly in the third trimester, because you know you think about this: kids can be born two months premature, and they come up. I was three weeks premature, and I'm still immature. And <laughs> thank you. And you know, I could hear, couldn't see, but it's got nothing to do with it. <laughs> So, and you might recognize your father's voice, um, depending on if your father's around a lot, etc. But certainly your mom's voice, just because of you know, residents are going to recognize. And there's data on that like crazy. With, with brand new, like 12-hour-old babies. You play them the mother's voice, and you play them a different woman's voice, and they look more, they look for longer at the mother, where the mother's voice is coming from, than the other voice. They recognize. They've learned it. They remember Babies stare longer at face-like stimuli than at non-face-like stimuli. Um, the classic sort of study, and this again is this is done with this is done with 12-hour-old infants. You show them this or this. And they stare longer at the one on the left. Two eyes and a mouth. Because I think it's three breasts or what? <laughs> That's another possibility. Um, it's like an all-you-can-eat buffet. But they will stare longer at... They already know stuff. Now, have they learned that? Well, it's probably something that's built in. We have a face recognition system. But it, it, it's, it's permanence of something. So I think it's evidence of memory. Whoops. Okay. Now, do you remember anything from before you were two? Hard to remember I remember one thing. I remember when I was 18 months old without my glasses. And I figured that's because I could suddenly see stuff. Right? But generally, that's what it is. That's what it is. We don't tend to remember stuff. Okay, I'm going to ask a little question. Okay. Earliest memory, let's say, is it, uh, and put your hand up if, and, then, and then leave it. What's up? Can everybody here remember something from when they were 10? Yeah, okay, good. How about 9? Just keep them up and then you put them at 8. Seven, six, five, four, three, 
two, yeah, and that's usually where it cuts off. Usually almost anybody at two, it's like, no, nothing. Right? And usually if you remember something at two or three, it's something pretty significant in your life. The other thing I remember at that age, I was two and a half when my, my brother was born. Because I remember coming home from the hospital. And my mom showing me my little brother. And I gave him toy cars. And I said, he didn't, and I, I told him to play. And then yeah, I looked up and I said, mommy, he doesn't play. I was quite upset with that. See, the problem is, I've actually been told that story, too. So I remember parts of that, and I can remember weird details. So there are, I do have a real memory of it, because I can remember things like how our place was laid out in Kingston, where we lived. I remember the color of the blanket they was in. And the, the pictures were all black and white. Because I lived back when I, when I was a kid, everything was black and white. Um, except for snippets of things were in color, right? And if you weren't, Kansas was all in black and white. But if it was a bad storm, you should have asked anyone. Um, so, thing is, that's a pretty significant event in my life, my little brother being born. Right? Me getting glasses is pretty significant. Beyond that, day to day stuff, I remember the odd little snip. I remember being in nursery school, which is what we used to call daycare, um, when I was about four, and painting at an easel. I remember that because the teacher said, What are you painting, David? I said, A map. <laughs> he said, Really? I said, This is Toronto. This is Kingston. This is Montreal. This is the 401. We used to go to Montreal a lot in Kingston. I was a weird kid. Um, <laughs> I really was an odd little boy. But those are little events, right? Generally, we don't remember anything, from when, especially pre verbal. I can't remember anything from when I was, before I could speak. I, I spoke pretty early, so I, the, the memory of, of getting my glasses I have. But beyond that, no. Okay, why? Why don't we remember anything? So, it's a good question. Is it your brain's immature? Well, you know, there's not a lot of connections. I mean, there are connections, obviously, if we're not, you'd just be born and you'd die. But, you have more neurons when you're born than any other time in your life, except that they aren't connected yet. A lot of them. So, we know that connections are part of what learning is. So maybe you can't remember stuff yet because you just don't have the gear, basically. The hardware isn't installed yet. Right? You need an upgrade. Is it a lack of linguistic development? It seems that almost everybody has memories when they could speak, but we don't have any memories of when we couldn't speak. I have no memories of pointing at something and just whining at it. <laughs> well, I do, but that's, you know, like yesterday. But I had way too much to drink. And I was, uh, make me a frozen pizza. Um, no, that didn't happen. That was a joke. Joke. But you know, that babies do that, right? They point at things, they grasp at things, and they whine. You know exactly what they mean. They do that thing. And you don't remember that. You don't remember doing that. The people in here that are laughing mostly are people that either have kids or have little brothers and sisters. Right? Because we all remember that. Our little brothers and sisters are our kids doing that. So it might it be that our 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 our, our Cognitive systems are so dependent on languages as people that pre-verbal stuff 
We just can't remember because our, our semantic memory, for example, is a series of, of propositions. That may have some rule, but it's certainly the case that non-verbal non, uh, people can remember things, right? And learn things. <clears throat> hmm. Okay. So that's a little iffy, but that's another thought. So you can remember big events, but they don't—they don't tend to be before you. Like I mean, my my uh, niece uh, Summer—I don't think she remembers when her sister Taylor was born, eleven months later. There's no way she. Right? And she wasn't speaking. It's a big event in your life, you kid, don't remember. Right? I don't remember moving from Sault Ste. Marie to Kingston. I remember looking at an apartment in Kingston. My mother was pregnant with my brother. Because I remember looking up, holding my mother's hand, and she's got this giant belly, and we're looking at an apartment. Again, just this odd little thing, right? But again, that's a big event with moving. But I don't remember the move itself. I don't remember any of that stuff. No. And again, I was two. So it's a big event. You know, in some respects, it's functionally good that we don't. So not just that's a causal. That's, that's within our lifetime. But it makes a lot of sense that we don't. Because there are a lot of events that you probably that functionally wouldn't be very useful to remember as an adult. And in fact, maybe almost traumatic. Right? Remembering when everyone is 10 times bigger than you probably wouldn't be very pleasant. Right? The birth would be a pleasant thing to remember. Yeah. Well, sure, it would be traumatic because, you know, you're being forced out of someone else. Yeah, yeah, you're floating, you're weightless, you don't have to eat. You know? And then, so breathe, and then suddenly it's cold everywhere. You know? Plus, think about, you know, would you want to remember things like breastfeeding for your own mom? It's <laughs> creepy. I don't want to remember that. Do you want to remember your drunk uncle picking you up and his, 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 all your field of view is just his big drunk face talking to you? That's really nice to meet you. <laughs> no? Do you want to remember having just shit in your pants? No! I don't want to know about that! So it's like, functionally it makes some sense. There's a lot of stuff in there that really, literally, it's scary. The world's a pretty scary place at first. It's scarier when you get older because you realize that, you know, but that's a whole different matter. Right? So functionally it actually makes some sense to not remember, explicitly at least, a lot of this stuff. Implicitly we obviously have. We remember the language we learn to speak, so clearly we... But with explicit memories, we don't really have it in that period. And it makes some, not only does it make a sort of causal sense with great maturity and linguistic development, it also makes some functional sense. Um, what, what can babies actually do? They can learn through habituation. So you show a baby a, a novel, and this, this is true with like two, three-month-old babies. You show a baby a novel stimulus, they'll look at it. Right? Now, if you show a baby a novel stimulus over and over again, they, well, it was a novel stimulus, it stops being novel, they stop looking at it. It's habituation. 
The neat thing is they can learn certain stimulus uh, aspects. So for example, it might be the shape, it might be the color. They can even learn complex ones like five-sided green objects, things like that. Really complicated abstract stuff. And we're talking three, four, five, six-month-old babies. Okay, that shows me. Um, a lot of instrumental approaches. Um, the first thing is that recognition of individuals <coughs> improves with age. But you start to recognize members of your family, your pets, your toys. Um, and this improves with age. And this is just basically, we can think of this as instrumental conditioning. Um, we can also do things like, for example, you can do this with like a very small baby, a three-month-old baby, is you um, lie down a crib, and you take their leg, and you uh, attach it to, like a, uh, you tie it off, attached to a mobile. You know, babies like mobiles, right? And you start it up, and then the mobile goes, they look at it, and you try to grab 45 seconds of sleep. And then it stops, and you turn it back on. You can actually hook it up such that the babies, if they pull their leg, it's like the mobile. Okay. I'm not saying you should do this at home because you could hurt your kid. Like, this is not going to happen. If all clammed up, that wouldn't be good. But, oh, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be. I'm talking about ethics right here. Um, but in a lab, you can do it because you're watching the kid, right? They learn very quickly that if they pull their leg, it starts to... It starts the mobile again. And this is like three multiple babies. Pretty cool. Um, they show interference effects. So if you teach them that one thing does that and then try to have them learn that something else operates the mobile, they have more problems learning that than if they just learn the one thing operates the mobile. They show the spacing effects such that distributed practice versus mass practice, basically. They, do, they, they learn better if you have small numbers of trials interspersed with sort of rests, just like any animal does. And you can cue them. So you can actually show them, like say, turn on a light, and then that means that if they pull their leg, the mobile operates. This should remind those of you that took learning of the kind of things we do with rats and pigeons and monkeys, and it is. And the reason is that we're also, those of us that do animal stuff, we deal with nonverbal beings. And that's exactly what's going on here. And we're talking, when I was a postdoc at Western, talking to a guy, uh, George Travolzi, and George does work on newborns. And we talk, about how, we talk all the time about how similar the kind of work we did was, even though we didn't read each other's stuff. We would use similar techniques, etc. Just because, frankly, there, he was also dealing with nonverbal animals. Um, older kids will learn with verbal cues and with other, um, which is imitation, which is showing you how to do something. They can learn a new task. So you get a little older. Now we're talking, you know, toddlers. You can teach older kids a new task by showing them how to do it. Right? And again, if you've got kids or you, you've been around, you had a little brother or sister or whatever, you know that when they get a complicated kind of toy, showing them how to use it, and then they can do it. You know, it could be Legos, it could be playing with a, using a controller for a, for a video game. It could be using um, an iPad. There's a wonderful video on YouTube of a two-year-old kid 
trying to read a mag reading a magazine, like just looking at it, but trying to pinch and zoom, but it's a magazine. Because <laughs> wow. her experience with looking at stuff like that is with an iPad. You know, nothing off giving your kid one of those. They're, they're, it's an expensive thing, but it's all kinds of great games, things they can learn. And the kid was used to this, and the dad was watching this kid, and she's like looking at, I don't know what magazine it was, I don't even remember what it was, and she's doing this. I'm getting all frustrated how it doesn't zoom in. <laughs> you know. My daughter does that because, uh, well, a little bit differently, I've got my phone there, and she's gotten used to trying to play with it and pinching and zooming and stuff, and then she'll go on my laptop and start picking up the screen while I'm doing oh, something. Oh, I do that. <laughs> no, you use enough <laughs> tablets and phones and that, and you get your laptop and you do this. Oh, no, sorry, it doesn't do anything with that. <laughs> you know, I mean, we've all done that if you, if you play with the stuff in that. Um, so you, you can teach by imitation. They can learn that, right? Um, like I said, building something. You can show a kid how to build something with Legos, and then they can, they can do it. And then what we do is we test retention. So you bring them into the lab one day. They're maybe three years old. You say, now, what I want you to build is like a tower, and you show them how to build a tower with Legos, and then they build it, and you got to know. Tell them they did great. You give them a toy or something, give them a candy. And then they come back a week later, and you say, build the, build the tower again. And they can remember how to do it. And you can go from really simple things to complicated things. You can go from a, a simple little tower up to being able to build a more complicated model. And this is very often what's done, right? And the regular effects show up. What do I mean by the regular effects? I mean, the, you know, the forgetting curve, savings, all the things you would, you would expect to see in any old memory kind of test that we would see today with, with, with fully grown people learning lists of words or with Ebbinghaus found with his constant about constant trigrams. You see with kids learning how to build towers with Legos. And then when I say kids, these are toddlers. These are like three-year-olds. One of the things that we should be good at is remembering where stuff is, where we've been, where we're going. We talked about visual spatial sketch pattern, right? Um, there's a lot of occasions people study animal cognitions, I said, those who study kids show they have a lot in common. And this is a classic example here. Um, both deal with subjects that have no way to directly tell you what they remember. Or even if they do speak, it's very they're very easily distracted. I can ask you how you remembered something. And you can show me a little bit of insight. Um, distracting a three-year-old. Three-year-olds are distracted. That's what they do. They go from one thing to another. That's, that's... They'll do things. A three-year-old will just do this out of nowhere. And that's like entertaining for like five minutes. What are you doing? No, I'm just doing this. Moving my arms. It's like they just distract themselves, right? They're distraction machines. So they can't really tell you. You're not going to get a lot of good introspection there, let's say that. Same thing with a, with a pigeon. So a good example of this work is, is, is work on toddler spatial memory, which is based on Ken Ching's work with rats. So it's finding out how toddlers, these are three and a half year olds, 
how they remember where stuff is. And kids do remember where stuff is. They know where their bedrooms are. They know where things are in their rooms. Right? They know where things are in cupboards. They know where the baker's semi-sweet chocolate is. It's only for making cake. It reminds me of an experiment I remember hearing. I just can't okay. remember the name. Um, and it's used with toddlers around two, three years old. And it's got something to do with a doll in a house. And you've got two sides. And they stick something underneath the pillow. Yep. The, the kid does. And then the experimenter goes and pulls it out. Yep. And the kid goes to go see if it's there. But it's not there. But they know where to go and find it. Yes. And I mean, the, the neat thing about that is that work, this stuff I'm going to talk about, the animal stuff inspired the human stuff. That what you're talking about, the, the, the human stuff has inspired some animal stuff. So the same stuff's been done. Uh, Danny Pavanelli's done this kind of stuff where he takes... Um, uh, chips, and he shows them a model of a room, and shows them a toy they like, and puts it in like the little dresser in the little dollhouse, and then he takes the chimp into the room that looks just like it was in the dollhouse, so the chimp can find where the, where the, where the toy was. Um, so that's exactly going the opposite way, but the human stuff has inspired the animal stuff. Um, and this is where the animal stuff inspired the human stuff, which is quite neat. And this, like I said, kids know where stuff is. So, first of all, I'll tell you what Ken did, some of you guys have heard about this experiment before. This, um, is with rats, okay? So, so what he does is he's got, this is a box like this, okay, about that wide, and like that, and it's full of sawdust, it's full of sawdust, and it's got a very cocoa puff. Rats love their cuckoo for cocoa puffs, right? <laughs> so he has them dig, they learn very quickly, and then they search for the cocoa puff, and then they remember they go to two places. They go to the exact same place and the place that is, you can see here, exactly opposite. A rotation, right? Because if it's here, it's short, it's long, short on the left and long on the right. So is this place here. So they don't make these kind of errors. Reflections, they make these kind of errors, rotations. And they need to apply this feature of information because at first it was a blank, it was a, a, the arena, you call it, was had blank white walls. The only thing they can use is the geometry of the room, right? But then he applied featural information to the walls and the corners, so different shadings, etc. And, and even smell, peppermint oil, things like that. So things, it didn't matter. They tend to make, either get it correct or make these rotation errors. They still make errors, but they still make rotation errors. Okay. And you can see that's percentages. Okay. This shows that rats have this specialized spatial cognition system that has a module that just deals with, with, with geometry. So we concluded that rats are responding based on the geometry of the box. What other conclusion actually could he make? So that was actually a pretty cool paper back in 86. This was Ken's, uh, Ken Chang's uh, PhD thesis. Very nice work. It's inspired people for almost... 30 years, that's amazing, um, to do this kind of stuff. I'm presenting a talk on stuff like this uh, in 29 days in Florida. I'll work like this. So I do stuff like this with, with people. Now, Herman Spelke did this really cool experiment in 94. This was published in a meaningless little journal called Nature. Um, they tried the Chang experiment with 
kids and adults, so toddlers and adults. What they did is they took them into a room that was rectangular and all white. And for the kids, they put a teddy bear in a corner. And then they showed them that. And then they had the kids close their eyes and they disoriented them. Uh, oh, sorry, for the adults, they closed their eyes and they disoriented them. Um, so they blindfolded them and they spin them around. They spin them right around, baby, right around. <laughs> it's amazing that people still recognize that horrible song from 1985. So you get all spun around. Then they have to find where the... Now, with the adults, they don't use a teddy bear. You say, over there, that works just fine for adults. And the adults that have to find it. With the kids, you use a teddy bear, and you know how you distract a three-year-old? You talk to them for 10 seconds. And then you have them do it. You take the teddy bear away. Where was the teddy bear? So they were disoriented. The adults were the kids. You didn't really have to disorient them. They're three-year-olds. You talk to them for a few seconds. What did you have for lunch today? Do you like pizza? You know, just anything. And they just start talking. So the, and then sometimes there was a cue. Now, with you can either have it all white or you can have one of the walls be blue. Okay? Now, what happens when one of the walls is blue with adults? Well, suddenly they have no problem. Right? It's like, well, it's by the blue wall on the right. Yeah, that's easy. So here's the data. So we can see with the all white room, look at the adults. like rats. Look at the kids. I'm sure look at the adults here with the blue wall. Yeah, the odd person made a mistake, but almost everyone else was over here. Right? So they get three choices uh, by the looks of that. Yeah, I think so. Yes, and almost all the choices are correct. There's the odd one that's incorrect. Toddlers, on the other hand, um, the blue wall doesn't help them at all. They're only paying attention to the geometry of the room. So toddlers are not unlike rats in this situation. Um, the adults were different. They followed the cue. Right? The adults are following the cue because as soon as you give it to them, they don't make mistakes anymore. The kids are actually still making these rotations. They're only following the, the geometry of the, of the room there. It's pretty neat. So they're remembering where stuff is based on geometry. The adults do... When it's the only thing available, as soon as you give them a cue, they use that. The same thing actually was done. Uh, Andrea Pike, an old student of mine, uh, found this in 2001. Instead of using a big room, uh, she used um, a piece of Bristol board that had adults point to a place on it, and then she would spin it around, the, the Bristol board. And then... With, when there was no cue, rotational errors, when there was a cue, which was a white strip on the side, they had no problem at all. Okay. So that's kind of cool. We can take a look at something like, how do you remember where stuff is? And it's hard for even an adult to say it, but I think we'd all know that we would use the geometry of a place unless we had some good cue to use. Once you get to be an adult, everything goes downhill. Once you hit your 70s, your brain starts to shrink. Along with everything else, old people get shorter. I don't know what that is, but they just do. Don't they? That makes sense. There's probably general cognitive slowing. That accounts for some of the semantic memory problems older people have. 
And just general, everything just slows down. Nothing works as well. Wear and tear. It's wear and tear, right? So there are semantic memory problems. You can ask people, older people, knowledge about the world, and they start having problems with that. They just think it's slower. They don't get the most old people don't end up being like they don't remember the capital of Vietnam anymore. But it takes them longer to remember it. And there's, it seems there's general cognitive slowing. It takes longer to do anything that involves any thinking. And it doesn't have to be something that's debilitating in any way. But it's just general slow. Right? Um, episodic memory declines as well. And you can say, yeah, my 90-year-old grandmother tells me stories about the 1930s. I know. Ask her what she had for lunch. Those memories are already in there. Right? Why do you think, and this is one of the things people have always asked, why is it that older people tell so many stories about their childhoods and when they were young people? Because they're easier to remember. It's, 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 it's easier to bring that stuff into consciousness than it is to remember what you had for lunch. And again, this doesn't have to be a sign of Alzheimer's or anything like that. This just can just be getting old. Right? Could it just be because those episodic memories um, have been there longer and have been told just a Oh, I think that's a lot. That's part of it, too. That's part of it, too. Yeah. And of course, they'll tell you the same story over and over again because they don't remember what they just told to you. Two days <laughs> right? That's right. Oh, yeah. No, there's no argument with I mean, your episodic memory declines, too. It, 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 it's bound to happen. You also can't run as fast. I mean, this shouldn't surprise anybody. Um, one of the things that Simon has done uh, is look at encoding. Maybe it's a failure of encoding. Right? So maybe learning new things is harder when you get older because it's harder to encode stuff. Why would it be harder to encode stuff? Well, maybe you're more easily distracted if you get older. So what Simon has done, it's kind of cool, basically standard learning tasks, learning lists of words, but either having distractions around or not. So in a quiet room versus a loud room. Those differences don't really show up in your age. There really are none. They can become much more pronounced the older you get. Right? They become much more pronounced the older you get. This is why I, can, I often tell students you shouldn't listen to music while you study, and they go, well, I, I can do it. Yeah, I know you can, because the difference is, is small, but it's real. You'll, you'd notice it as you get older. So maybe they're just more susceptible to interference. Now, interference can also come from other items you're learning. Right? It's not just from other stuff around you. It's from the other items in a list of words you're learning, for example. And this has been shown by giving people semantically similar terms to learn. Again, that's hard for you, by the way. That's hard for you, too. If I'm giving you all words that mean roughly the same thing, it's hard to remember all of them. But you can do it a lot better than someone who's older. The older you get, the more susceptible you are to interference. It takes older, the older people get, it takes them longer to read things. 
And when you're reading, it's a semantic task, right? So if we're going to distract the memory, is easily distracted. This really looks like the idea is that it's they can't inhibit encoding other stuff that's irrelevant. We're pretty good when we're, you know, between your probably mid-teens till your 40s. You're, pro you're typically pretty good at being able to focus on something if you have to. But the older you get, the harder this becomes. It's harder not to pay attention to the irrelevant. Right? Basically, you get sustained activation of irrelevant material. There is always irrelevant material around you. Right? You're sitting here in class right now, you're writing stuff down, you're listening to me speak, and there is irrelevant stuff happening. You know, some people are having a conversation, whatever, and I'm not trying to say anybody's talking. This. If I think you're talking too much, I tell you to shut up. You know that about um, Or your foot's itchy. Now, right now, everybody's foot's going to be itchy. But say that. Um, whatever. You're thinking about your next class. It doesn't matter what the hell it is. There's all these extra things that, but you just, they go away. It's easier to just ignore them. But you get sustained activation of irrelevant material the older you get. That's, that's the guess here. So it's general. It's probably general cognitive slowing and a problem with, with inhibition, the, the, ability, the inability to inhibit irrelevant information. So the next time there's an old person in front of you and they don't know how to use their bank card, give them a break. You know. Okay, we're going to actually get back on time exactly where I want to be, finally. Um, the development that happens in kids is amazing. So in conclusion here, think about this. You go from being something that doesn't know anything, except it's mom and dad's voice, and to look at it. Those things are rather notable. To someone you can carry on a conversation with until they're three or four. I mean, it's not the highest level conversation, but you can hold a conversation with somebody. That's pretty amazing working memory. And then that can learn and remember stuff. And we put kids in school and they learn to remember things. It's incredible. It's in a very short period. Think about in how short periods, how you guys are. On average, let's just say you're 20. I'm just going to pick a number because it makes math easy. Ten years ago, there's not a chance in hell you could learn most of this material. Right? I could see her tell you it. I could even have, I don't know, film strips and little plays put on and stuff like that you do in elementary school. You wouldn't learn a damn thing. You weren't capable of it. You weren't capable of remembering it or encoding it. And now you can. It's just an amazing thing. Humans are incredible animals. Um, it's functionally sensible we don't have too many episodic memories from preverbal times. Um, they aren't that useful for the rest of our life, for our adult lives. They have, they have no function whatsoever. Right? They don't help us in any way, and they would be, at times, I think, disturbing. Right? But they really, when you think about 
the function of them, they would have no function. So why encode them? Why remember them? Remember there is decline, but it's the impact of that decline can be lessened with coping skills. Right? So older people might need more time to do something. Maybe when they're learning how to you know, we're all used to technology changing all the time, so we're used to learning how to use new pieces of tech all the time, right? So we're used to learning how to use a new kind of phone or using a new operating system even. You know, Windows 8 comes out and suddenly it looks like an Xbox. Um, so we're used to that. We're used to that. Your parents or grandparents are going to have a lot more trouble with that kind of thing. Right? But in time, they can learn it. But they need coping skills. They need to be carefully taught stuff, to, to ignore the irrelevant, that kind of thing. The hardest thing when teaching, when, when teaching um, older adults, uh, senior citizens, etc., teaching them new skills like that is to do it in a respectful way that isn't like you're talking to a baby. And that's a hard thing to do when the person actually doesn't have the computer skills of a baby. And I'm serious. You can give, a, give your iPad to your grandmother and she looks at it and goes, what's this for? Because you know, that's how she talks. And, and it's, it's, it's actually, even though it's the, probably the most completely intuitive interface ever, you point at stuff and it happens, they're not used to that. Right? So you have to be careful with that kind of stuff and teach people. That said, it can be done. It can be done. One of my uh, favorite students I ever had was a guy who was uh, an ex-IBM engineer, and he was 66 years old, and I taught him statistics at U of T. And I, do, I remember, we used to joke with him all the time, and everybody called him Gramps. Even I did. Yeah. I keep saying, who brought that grandfather? I was teaching the class. Yeah. Did a question, or no? I thought you were doing this. Um, but you can do it. He actually did very well. So we have to remember that we should also keep in mind, though, that it shouldn't be surprising that the older people get, the more trouble they're going to have learning things and adapting to things. And it's not just because of society and culture. Things are different now. Men have long hair and earrings. It's also just because cognitively they're going to be, on average, slower. Also, finally, remember that I just said on average, and you can't just walk by somebody who's over the age of 60 and go, hey, how's that general cognitive slowing work? Okay. There's a lot of people that are over 16 that are smarter than any of us in this room. And on that note, we'll finally cut back up. Thanks, guys. Dave, will you keep around? Uh, Here you are at last. Bring my cold, lonely soul, sweet relief from my weary Always searching one missing piece was you And I beg you come away with me And together we will find a place to call our own I can't wait to see what I can do With a laptop like you Not your CD slot or the universe.
my lap hot It's underneath your aluminum case There's love And I forgive your strange one-button mouse I forgive the way your keyboard leaves marks on your screen I can overlook a fault or two for a laptop like podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right, giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.